Hebrews chapter 12, but I want to talk about the work and the pain of God's chastening. Hebrews chapter 12. Let's just read down verses 6 to 11. What's this guy looking at? Anybody know? Just a rock, right? A diamond. But is it the kind of diamond you'd wear on your, your finger or something? No, of course not. Uh, listen, you and I may look like dirt, all right? But to God, we're, we're uncut diamonds, okay? We're worth more than the world. One soul is worth more than the world. And when he sees us, he sees what he can do with us and what we need to be, but he can't take us as we are and just say, that's done. No, no, that's where he begins. He accepts us as we are, as sinners, as flawed, as messed up, as lost, but he definitely doesn't stop there. He says, I'm going to make something beautiful out of this person. I'll make something that will shine for eternity. So, Hebrews chapter 12, let me show you how he does that. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 6. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. And scourges every son whom he receiveth. If he abide, if he endure chastening, that means it's not hard. It's not easy. It's hard. If he endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the father chasteneth not? But if he be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are ye bastards and not sons. You're not in the family. Furthermore, we had we have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us. Boy, did they ever! And we gave them reverence. Shall we not rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? For they, our earthly parents, verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure. We got in their way. We upset them. We embarrassed them. So they chastened us for their pleasure. But He, God, did it for our profit that we might be partakers of His holiness. Now, verse 11 is the key verse. Now, no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Alright, when we start to talk about chastening, it doesn't make sense to people. It's just, what are you talking about? The very thought of a God of love, and we do preach a God of love. We do say that God is love, don't we? Alright? That's, that's the Bible, God, the character of God. God begins with love. But he doesn't just sit there living this idea of, oh, I just love everybody. Just do what you want. Let's all be happy. No, that's not how he works. Uh, uh, this idea that a God of love would be at work in my life and in the life of every believer constantly chastening us. Wait a minute. I want a blessing. Forget it. You see... We want all the good, but we don't want to change. Okay. God wants us to change so that we can have the good. So, we have a problem, and not just the unsaved, but Christians have a problem with a God of love constantly at work, chastening his children, and it's just, it just doesn't make sense. You see, when we were growing up, if our parents gave us what we wanted, we thought they loved us. If they held it back, we thought they hated us. And so to us, love and comfort was based on getting what we want. And that's not how God operates. Aren't you glad? Chastening, correcting us, is what God does. Mark that down in your brain today because you're going to hear that over and over. What God does in the life, you say, God's not answering my prayers. God's not meeting my needs. God's not doing it. There is one thing that God always is doing, and that is he is always training, teaching, correcting, chastening his children. Doesn't sound very fun, does it? Ah, but it is, as we shall see. The one thing he is most active in my life, what, the one area he's most active in is in the area of chastening. There's not a time where he says, ah, Craig... You're perfect. Now, Dennis may be nearly perfect, but I'm way behind it. <clears throat> I'm way behind it. So, there is a great purpose and design in God's chastening. Job chapter 23, you can leave Hebrews. Job chapter 23, I hope you get familiar with these scriptures as we do this. Job, just before the book of Psalms in the middle of your Bible, Job chapter 23 and verse 8. Job 23 in verse 8. Behold, Job talking, he's lost everything. He is sitting alone. His friends are sitting 
away from him, pointing the finger at him, and, and, and really just, just hurting him more. And he's sitting there in verse 8, Behold, I am trying to go forward, he says, but he, God, is not there. I, I try to go backward, but I cannot perceive him. On the left hand, watch these words, where he doth work. I know he's working there, but I cannot behold him. He hideth himself on, my, on the right hand that I cannot see him. But verse 10 is the help. Here's the pickup. But he knoweth the way that I take. When he hath tried me, when he hath put me through the mill, when he's taken me down through the valley of the shadow of death, when he has, when he has brought into my life hardships, I shall come forth as what? All right. So, why don't we start in prayer? Father, we do ask you to meet with us in a special way this morning. We need to understand these truths. These are not facts, information. This is, this is life-changing truth and it can change a heart and save a, 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 it can save a soul this morning. It can save somebody who just, just has quit over and over and over and it's, it's just gotten so heavy for them and got so hard and they don't understand why or how or where or what anymore. So Lord, I pray that our eyes are open to your wonderful marvelous, gentle, firm hand in our life. And may it be received sweetly and fruitfully. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> All right, let's go by review. Last week I told you what chastening meant. And chastening simply means teaching, training, having a clear expectation of children. Chastening is a word for children, by the way. That's how we are. We're not ever equal with God. We're always at a level where God has to deal with us like children does, like, he, like, like parents have to deal with their children. And teaching, training, or having clear expectations of us and carrying out corrective measures when a child is not doing something right. So not just teaching, it's also correcting us when we're not getting it. Now, how does God correct us? Oh, by the way, uh, let me go back here for a chastening. Uh, it's not punishment. It's correction. Farmers call it pruning. Sports trainers call it training. Jewelers call it cutting. Animal trainers also call it training. God simply calls it chastening. And it is good. It is good. Now, how does God correct us? Proverbs chapter 6. You're in Job. Go to the right. Pass by Psalms and go to Proverbs chapter 6 and verse 23. <clears throat> How does God correct us? I said these things last week, but it's, it's fundamental and foundational for us to be reminded so that we can build on this. Proverbs chapter 6 and verse 23. So the commandment is a lamp. Not an electric lamp, but a, like we call it a torch or a flashlight. It's, it's a, it shines on our path. It shows us where to go. And uh, chapter 6, verse 23, For the commandment is a lamp, and the law is light, and reproofs of instruction. Reproofs, a positive or negative word? It's a negative word. Reproofs of instruction are the way of life. If you ever want to grow, if you ever want to do better, you need to be told you're doing something wrong in order to do it right, in order to do better. Okay, so it's a way of life, especially for the Christian so, how does God correct us? He corrects us just by commandments, just by words in a book. That's how you know you're in the Bible. God doesn't have to escalate it. He's already talking to you. You're already listening. And he says, you're doing something wrong? You go, yes, sir. Amen. But when you don't listen, he raises the pressure. Go to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Well, I'll say two things here. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Second Timothy chapter 3 in verse 16 tells you this. It says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. God inspired it. God authored it. And it's profitable for doctrine. Okay, I can learn what's right. For reproof. All right, I learned what's not right. What's the next words? For correction. That's how to get right. 
in for instruction in righteousness. That's how to get right. That the man of God, that every person in this room, born again, can become mature and may be perfect, truly furnished under every and to all good works. Go to chapter 4, verse 1. So God uses the Bible, but I want you to see sometimes when you're not listening to your Bible, God brings you to church and then he asks you to listen to the preacher. Chapter 4, verse 1, I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul talking to Timothy, saying, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom. Timothy, preach that word. Preach what we just quoted there, all scripture. Preach the word. Be instant in season, out of season. Reprove. There's your negative. Rebuke. There's negative. Exhort. There's your positive. With all long-suffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will come to church and yet will not endure sound doctrine. But after their own lusts shall heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. And they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fable. How does God uh, correct us? How does he chasten us? He brings us into uncomfortable preachers preaching about uncomfortable things. That's how you measure a good preacher. If he only makes you feel good, he's only, under, he's only done half the job. Sometimes he's got a... Hey, listen, how many had a pancake recently? You know what a pancake is? Pancake is cooked on both sides, isn't it? How would you like to have a pancake? Only one side's cooked, the other's raw. A lot of people only go to church and only get one side. Let's all just hug. Let's all just feel good. Let's just all love one another. That's all important. You got to... You gotta love one another. But if all you're doing is love one another, there's a raw side that hadn't been touched yet. Sometimes you gotta get down and dirty and right where we live and be rebuked. Amen? Amen. All right. So God corrects us through the Word, through preaching. He, he corrects us through the Holy Spirit. You get an idea in your head, where's it come from? You get an idea and you set out you're gonna do something. And you know it's wrong. And you know, I know last time I did this, I got in trouble. But I'm still going to go ahead and do it. And the Holy Spirit just grips your heart and won't let you breathe. That's the chastening of the Holy Spirit. That's a good thing. Amen. How does God correct us? Sometimes that grief in your heart. God, sometimes, he, hey, how does God correct us? He goes quiet. You ever had the, the cold shoulder by somebody? You ever had the silent treatment? It's the, it, it's the most painful thing ever, isn't it? You know, when God goes silent, that's just as bad. He's trying to let us know, you're going to try to live without me, bud? You, you really want this? Okay. Now, he's not leaving us. He's not abandoning us. But he goes quiet. I'll tell you what, that's the worst thing that happened to anybody's life is for God to leave us alone. That's chastening. And then God starts to work against you. You know, the Bible says God resisteth the proud. That means he puts up roadblocks and stops you from doing what you want to do. I mean, he puts you in the hospital. <laughs> he, he gets you fired from a job. Everything just goes wrong. And you say, God, what's going on? Sometimes God has to do that. That's chastening. And then sometimes it goes to where you just don't even want to talk about it, man. Job chapter 19, we don't have time to look there. Job says this. Don't go there. It's okay. But Job says, his hand is heavy upon me. That's how he saw. He said, God, it was just killing him. So, third thing I talked about last week is why does God chasten his people? And I said four things. Number one was it was not to punish us, but to prove that he loves us. You see, if God didn't intensely love us, he would leave us alone. Greatest proof that he loves you is he won't leave you alone. If he is leaving you alone, I'd be scared of hell right now if I were you. If you just got away with sin, if you, could, if you were a banker in here and you had, had embezzled a million euros, you had lied on your taxes the last 25 years, and you're just as happy as Larry, I'd say you're as hell-bound as, as the worst sinner on the planet. If you've got no conscience, if the Lord hasn't rebuked you, hasn't chastened you, you've got no grief over it, then you're lost. Because I couldn't get away with it. Amen? Amen. He proves that he loves us. Secondly, it awakens, it awakens our sorrow for sin. That's why our children, when they do wrong, in comes dead. Stop it. Sorry. Amen. Amen. That's what it's supposed to be like. We've got too many mothers in our lives who just, oh, I understand, Craig. Oh, I understand why you did that. Oh, just, 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 just keep going. You'll be all right. My son, he's just having one of those days. No, he's a sinner. Somebody needs to stand up to him and rebuke him. Put some pressure on him. Amen. So God brings us to a place where we finally say, Lord, you win. I'm sorry. Amen. 
That's why he, bring, he chastens us. Thirdly, to give us wisdom. It teaches us. Don't go that way. <laughs> what do we teach our children? Hob, hot. Hot. Two, one-syllable words. Hob, hot. Don't touch. Amen. Yeah! Hob, hot. Yeah, amen. Good. But sometimes before they ever do that, you put your hand, they put their hand up there and you go, no. Wouldn't you rather for you to hit their hand for a little pain up there than a permanent scar there? Amen. Amen. So God comes along and he puts a little on you and you go, and he's saving you from scars later on. Amen. To give you wisdom. (laughs) Hop, hot. (laughs) Sin bad. Amen. (laughs) Amen. One syllable words, okay? And to produce holiness in us. That's the, his goal is to make us like Jesus Christ. That's where we're going today. Now, if you didn't understand any of that and you want to get it all, it's online. You can pick it up on the Internet and listen to last week's message. But this morning, I want to talk about trouble. <laughs> we need to go to Job chapter 14. Job chapter 14. Trouble in your life. How many? I'm not going to Don't raise your hand. How many got trouble in your life? I bet. <laughs> Job chapter 14. Job chapter 14, verse (laughs) 1. See if you agree with this. Don't you tell me the Bible's not true. The Bible's not the smartest book ever written. Job chapter 14, verse 1. Man that is born of a woman is a few days and full of trouble. (laughs) That's life. Now you look at Mark Zuckerberg and and you look at uh, uh, Bill Gates, and you look at some of these guys, you know, and people heading up FIFA and all this stuff, and they seem to have everything going for them. Let me tell you something. They just got different trouble. They just got different trouble. You just don't know about it. We're full of trouble. That's life. You say, I don't like it. doesn't matter. doesn't matter whether you're, uh, whether you're Christian or atheist, whether you're Buddhist or agnostic, whether you're evolutionist, whether you're male or female, young or old, we all have troubles. Amen. We all have sorrows, we all have disappointments, we all have problems, and we all have reasons to quit. Almost daily. (laughs) Now, there are four sources of trouble. Write these down. You ready? Number one, the first source, the first reason why you got trouble, the first thing you wake up in the morning, because Adam sinned, and you're reaping what he sowed. See, we we have troubles, we have afflictions, uh, we have bad weather, you know, because of Adam. It's all part of the curse that God placed on everything in our life when Adam decided to do his own thing, go his own way, and live without God. So we're reaping from his sin. Some people plant a crop, and then a storm washes it all away. what they do wrong? Maybe nothing. It's just part of the curse. It's just part of somebody gets a new job, here comes somebody, I've been praying for a job, and they join a company, and then the company folds. <laughs> And they're out of a job again. You say, what happened? Adam. You see? That's, sometimes you wake up and you say, man, the devil's really against me. Maybe not. Maybe it's just life. Amen? There's just, it's just the curse we live in. Second reason why there's trouble. Because you're reaping for your sin. Go to Galatians chapter 6. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. That four... That four food group, four book group there. Galatians there, chapter 6 and verse 7. Troubles in your life are often just you reaping what you've sown. It's the consequences of your own actions, your own sins. Look at Galatians chapter 6 and verse 7. Be not deceived. Boy, I wish I could just stand in front of the teenagers walking down the street, 10 o'clock at night, got... Got their Bud Dumber and their Red Bull and their Monster and their fags and their, their girls hanging on all sides. They're walking down, just looking and it says, Be not deceived, God is not mocked. Look at the rest of that verse. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. Now you can the next verse, verse eight there tells you you got two choices which you're going to sow to, which you're going to plant to. Verse eight says this For he that soweth to his flesh, you're going to live for yourself. Of that same flesh, you're going to reap corruption. It's called emphysema. 
It's called skin cancer, lung cancer. It's called uh, HIV virus. It's called sterilization. Uh, you're going to reap from your own sin. Amen. Be not, mocked, be not deceived. God is never mocked. Amen. Now, you can, you can sow to that, and you'll reap that same flesh coming back to you and biting you. But he that soweth lives to the Spirit. Invest in the spiritual things, shall of that same spirit will reap what kind of life? Life everlasting. So some of the things, some of the troubles are our own doing. Third reason why we have trouble is because the devil doesn't like us. You know, there's one person I do not want to like me. And that's the devil. Amen. I hope you all like me. But there's one person I really don't want to like me. That's the devil. And you know, when he gets his feathers all ruffled, and when he says, I'm going to go get Craig. Amen. But believe me, he's not nice. Sometimes you wake up and you wonder, man, where's all this stuff coming from? And I, all I'm trying to do is read my Bible. And everything's falling apart. I get called by the, by the boss and I'm fired. I get, I get uh, 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 my dog won't even say hello to me anymore. You know, the car won't start. Uh, my mother won't feed me. Uh, on and on and on and on. You say, all I'm trying to do is, is go to church. All I'm trying to do is read my Bible. All I'm trying to do is hand out tracts at work. All I'm trying to do is live for God. And everything's falling apart. The devil doesn't like you. Amen. That's the third reason why we have trouble. It's just, phew, you wake up and all hell breaks loose. Put your helmet on. Helmet of salvation. Shield of faith on. Sword of the Spirit. Feet shod with the preparation of the gospel. And head into battle. Amen. It's a spiritual battle. And then there's a fourth reason, and that's kind of the most important thing to talk about today. It's the pruning. It's the pruning. See, most of us are like this plant. Now, that's about as good as my green thumb will ever get. <laughs> I mean, Nita and I are just terrible. We just, we try, we plant things, and they die. And it's not for lack of trying and reading and stuff. Nita's better than I am. But you know, if there's, if there's a lot of Things just hanging on, dead in my life. You know what God is trying to do? Prune them. Cut them out. Because he wants life there. I'm come that you might have life. And if there's nothing but death, if there's nothing but late night TV, if there's nothing but, but griping, complaining, moaning, uh, I don't want to use the common words, uh, uh, if there's nothing but, but, but uh, anger and wrath and bitterness and all that stuff, it's death and God's got to cut it out. If there's going to be life. And if there's going to be anything that makes you like Jesus. Um, don't be so... Let me finish this here. You know, when God is pruning us, it is hurtful. It's not fun. He's actually... I'm going to tell you this. God on purpose actually works against his children. He actually causes pain. He brings troubles into our lives, even though we think that we've done nothing wrong. And he chips away at everything. What is he doing? He's chipping away at everything in your life that is not like Jesus. The Bible uses another word. Maybe it'll help you to understand. Go to Romans chapter 8. Go to the left. Find Romans chapter 8 and verse 29. Romans 8 and verse 29. I'll... I'll return to this thought in a few minutes, but the Bible words uses the word conform and fashion like from a hand, like these people who use tools to fashion something. Look at Romans chapter 8 and verse 29. For whom he, who, for me, God did foreknow, and he did also predestinate me to be conformed to the image of his son. That he, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many what? So he wants to have a big family. God wants to have a big family of people just like Jesus Christ. Amen. You know what it would be like if everybody was like Craig Ledbetter in heaven? Hell. Amen. I wouldn't trust me either. You see, if we're going to actually be a family in heaven, we need to all be like Jesus. Amen. So the purpose in my life is not, God didn't predestinate me for heaven. No, I made a choice to trust Jesus Christ to get me to heaven. He takes me, but he didn't predestinate me for heaven. He predestinated me to be like Jesus. And that means he's going to sometimes just grab me like my mom did when I was younger. Ever wonder how these got so big? He's going to grab me. Hold on. No. <laughs> 
and he's just going to take me back to the back side, over to the, to the back of the room and say, we're going to fix this. We're not going to have that attitude led better. Amen. Because he wants me like Jesus. All right. So God, and I use the word pruning. I'll show you another one. Go to um, Philippians chapter 3. Uh, to the right, Dennis was just talking about chapter 3 and verse 10. And I want to emphasize the last part of the verse, Philippians chapter 3 and verse 10. I like it when Dennis and I get together because he's usually on the same wavelength as I am. <clears throat> Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. Paul's greatest desire was that I, he speaking himself, saying that I may know Jesus, that I may know him, and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his what? How are you going to get in fellowship with suffering if you're not suffering? I need a penny. <laughs> How are you going to have fellowship with Jesus in the fellowship of suffering if you're not suffering? Keep going. Being made conformable. What is God doing? He's fashioned me unto his death. How did he die? He died forgiving. He died loving. He died thinking of others. How would you like to die? How would you like to live? Ready to die like that. I want to be conformable. I want to be changed so that I die right. Amen? Not bitter. Not cantankerous. Not grumpy. Not wanting to kill everybody around me. Amen? Being made, I want to be like him. So the troubles are God trying to make you like Jesus. That's the most important part. If you switch off for the rest of the message, don't do it. But if you switch off for the rest of the message, you've got the point. Amen? Let's, let's see if we can expand on a little bit more, all right? Don't confuse now chastening with punishment. Everybody does. People think that the work of chastening is the same as being punished. But I want to say this. There are two different goals. There are two different purposes in your life. Sometimes they both inflict pain, all right? The difference between punishment and discipline is not the nature of the pain, but the purpose of the pain. For example, all right, you ready? For example, a believer, uh, the, the suffering of an unbeliever and the suffering of a Christian, a believer, may be the same. Both can get cancer. I'm a Christian, and here I am struggling. I'm sitting in a hospital, and they don't know what they're going to do next. Yeah, Christian can get cancer. Both can have loved ones that die. Why would, why would God allow Christians to experience such sorrow? That's, a good, that's the right question. You just need the right answer. Both can lose their jobs. See, I'm a Christian. I, I witness on the job. I'm trying to serve God. I want to, I'm trying to be faithful in tithing. I'm trying to do everything right. And now I lost my job. Yes, both the unsaved and the saved both experience troubles. But in one sense, a man is being punished for sins. If you're lost, in the other sense, he's being disciplined. He's being taught. He's being changed and fashioned and conformed by God. The pain may be the same, but the purpose is different. And the result is eternal. Go direct to Romans, Romans chapter 8. We did verse 29. Now let's look at verse 28. Romans chapter 8 and verse 28. Romans chapter 8 and verse 28. Is that what I want? It is not. I want you to go to Romans 8.18. Romans 8.18. Here we are. For I reckon, you know Paul was a Texan. Come on, get your, uh, get your boots on. Read it in the original text, and you ready? For I reckon, I love it, that the sufferings of this present time, see, Paul's in the audience here raising his hand too, saying, I got trouble. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. How do you think Paul felt about suffering? He didn't enjoy it. But he knew one day it'd be worth it all. You see, an unsaved man sitting in a hospital. I was in the hospital. I went to Cork University Hospital years ago. I went in to go see somebody. And uh, next to him was a man who had uh, had a motorbike accident. Somebody had cut him off and he had to lay the bike down. And he, he was wearing leather, but he was going so fast it ripped off his flesh. And they were still picking stuff out of his flesh. 
from the tarmac. And there he was, and he was just in tears. And I'm talking to this other guy, and he was in the hospital. I forget what the problem was. But, uh, boy, what do you say? You know, as I, as I sat down there when the nurse finally left and everything, we're sitting there, you'd be gentle, man. He doesn't know what's going on in his life, and I just told him. And I just gave him a gospel track, and I just say, look, you know, and I didn't know what was going to come, but I'll tell you what happened right after that. As I handed him a gospel track, I said, look, there's somebody who loves you. Someone like to save you from something far worse than this. What could be worse than this? <laughs> Good question. And I said, an end that never ends. A dying that never finishes. I said, Jesus Christ went to a cross and died a more horrible death than you can imagine so that you could be forgiven and so that this is just a little scrape on the knee. He says, go away! My heart sunk. Because what's the difference between these two guys? One of them saved, and he's looking at I don't remember what, what, what was his problem. Maybe it was bad, what it was good, doesn't matter. If they both are in the same condition, one of them will go to hell, one of them will go to heaven. One will say, this isn't worth it. One will say, it is. You see the difference? You see the difference? You see, when you start looking at chastisement and punishment, in punishment, God is the judge. In discipline, he is the father. In punishment, the object of God's justice is an enemy. But in discipline, the object is a child that he's trying to correct. In punishment, the goal is condemnation. In discipline, the goal is is holiness. That's the wildest thing in the world. All those things happen to both. But the purpose when God brings them into your life for the Christian is all the good. When it happens in person life who's unsaved and we ask why, 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 it's nothing but wasted. And that's the sadness. That's why we've got to preach the good news. That's why we've got to go out and we've got to tell the world there is a reason. There is a purpose for looking unto Jesus. He's not a religious icon you turn to like a genie. He's not somebody you just go to and visit on a Sunday. He is Savior, and He is Lord, and He is God, and He is Father, who will make you like His Son. Now, the example. Why do I have to go through examples? But just so that you understand, God has had to punish this world, hadn't He? You go looking around and you see the sides. You go to, go to um, uh, the Cliffs of Moher out there and you see layer upon layer upon layer of rock. You ever notice that? You say, how do all those layers get laid? How do they get all laid out there? All over the world, there's layers upon layers. It was, there was a worldwide flood and everybody died in it. That's the judgment of God. There was a time where Saul, King Saul, was running his kingdom and King Saul decided, I don't need God. I don't want to, uh, to worry about God. I just want to worry about people's popularity. I want to be into Kenny. I want to get elected. I want to get elected. I want to get elected. And so all King Saul worried about was his popularity. And all he worried about was what people thought of him. And God just pulled back, pulled back, pulled back. And says, Saul, it's over. You're gone. And he lost the kingdom. And he was killed. It was the judgment of God. There was another man there. Oh, well, I'll get to him in a second. There is coming a judgment on this world that will make the flood seem like a bath. It's a coming dis uh, time of worldwide deception where the whole world will believe a lie and they'll turn to the Antichrist and believe that he's Jesus. Now, we'll be gone, but there's coming, and in the judgment of God, you won't be able to get saved then. That's why 2 Corinthians 6 says, Now is the accepted time, today is the day of salvation. Because tomorrow may be too late and God won't let you get saved. That is the judgment of God. You say, well, I'll get saved after I have my fun. You probably won't. Well, I'll get saved when I get old like you, Ledbetter. No, you won't. You see, you keep putting it off, putting it off. You'll go so far and the devil's got such a grip on you and then one day you'll look around, where's Ledbetter? Where's Dan? Where's Dennis? All these Christians are gone. And you won't be able to get saved. That is the judgment of God. You understand? Uh, you ever hear of a place called Sodom and Gomorrah? It's not there anymore. You know why? The judgment of God. By the way, we're wearing that same name today. Our societies are worse, I believe, than it was in Sodom and Gomorrah. There were two people, a husband and a wife, Ananias and Sapphira, and they reaped the judgment of God because they sat out there publicly living a lie in front of Christians, in front of the world, and God said, I will not allow that, and they 
died. It was a judgment of God. It was not chastening. It was death. There's another one where Moses, Moses just never dealt with his anger. Moses just carried that anger, carried that anger. One day he blew up and God said, that's it. I can't use you anymore. Is that scary? You see, there's chastening where God says, come on, Moses, let's try again. Come on, Moses, don't do that, Moses. Let's go this way. Moses, get that thing under control. And then he says, Moses, that's it. I can't use you anymore. You know what Paul prayed and worried about? He says that I would be cast away, not thrown away, not lost, but taken out of the way and put over in a corner and not used anymore. And Paul says, my greatest fear is that God would not be able to use me because I'm so stinking stubborn and so proud and I'm so hard-headed and I don't want to be like that. That ought to be a fear. I want the chastening of God. I need to fear the punishment of God. There is uh, Israel being punished by God, sent away in captivity for 70 years. God stirred up Babylon and sent in Nebuchadnezzar and wiped Israel off the map. God did it. God sent them in there and slaughtered hundreds of thousands of people. Took away children, took took old people, took everybody, dragged them away into captivity. God did it. Why? They didn't want God. They wanted to worship their little idols. They wanted to play harlotry and adultery amongst all of the other uh, idols. And, and they were God's people. And just like if your wife went away from you, just like when your husband walks away from you, just like if your kids just turn their back on you, there's a time where you have righteous indignation and say, I'm sorry, you're not dragging this family down. God judged them. Sent away into captivity. Seventy years brought them back. Seventy years later brought them back. But they reaped the judgment of God. They died. Jesus, when he was abandoned on that cross, you know what it was? God's judgment, wasn't it? But thank God, he took all the judgment. So that when you look unto him, you can be saved, and all the wrath of God that belongs on you and me ended up on him. And you can walk away forgiven, free, no more condemnation. Amen? You see, there are plenty of experiences, plenty. Of that's why the people don't like the Bible. It's so full of negatives. It's, that's right. That's right. So that you wake up and go, I sure do appreciate the chastening of God. Because I sure don't want the punishment of God. Now, example of God chastening. There are also examples. Go to Psalm 94. Psalm 94. In verse 12. You know, J. David had a load of times in his life where there was chastening going on. Psalm 94 and verse 12 says this. Blessed is the man whom thou, what? Now, don't we want it to say, blessed is the man whom thou blessest? <laughs> I think, you know, a child says, thank you for the ice cream. child says, thank you for my gift. But you know, when you grow up, you say, thank you for teaching me. Thank you for correcting me. Thank you for standing up to my temper tantrums. Thank you for, for not allowing me to get my own way. Thank you for being my father. Thank you for being my mother instead of my servant. Like most children have made their parents into. Amen. Amen. David had times where he, uh, and he looks back on his life and he says, blessed is the man, what verse am I again? I'm lost here. Twelve. Blessed is the man whom thou chastenest, O Lord, and teachest him out of thy law. You know, David was chastened when he sinned with Bathsheba, didn't he? God didn't kill him, did he? No. You know, when David humbled himself and said, you're right, I'm, I, I've done wrong, God said, you won't die. He could have died right then and there. But he humbled himself, but God's chastening had, hand had to come against David. And he reaped for the rest of his life. Another time when he was chased. Now, here's very important, okay? Get the picture. If we just look to David for a second. David's, God's chastening of David did not begin and end with Bathsheba. His time of chastening actually began when he was growing up and his father uh, teaching him, correcting him, and chasing him. Then, when he was anointed as king, and he stood before Saul, and Saul became envious of David, Saul picked up a, a javelin and threw it at David several times. Saul hired and ordered his army to hunt down David. What was God doing? Chastening him. Why wasn't God chastening Saul? God was through with Saul. 
God was now fashioning David into a man who could be a great king. And the only way to make a great king out of David was to bring trouble into his life. Not because David was wicked. We think chasing his punishment. You're a bad boy. You heard that all your life? You need to realize you are a sinner. But God doesn't see you as a bad boy or a bad girl. He sees you as an imperfect, not yet mature, needing correction, needing chastening, needing fashioning. He says, I'm going to work with you, lad, better. David, throughout his life, experienced trouble. You know, when his son Absalom turned on him, I wish you knew the Bible like, 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 I, like I wish you did. David had an older son who was in line to be king when David died. Absalom let bitterness rise in his heart, let the devil plant fortresses and, um, I want to say warehouses. What is it to uh, cast down, imagine every high thing? What does what Second Corinthians say? Uh, that the devil puts in the heart. Strongholds, thank you. The devil put a bunch of strongholds in Absalom's heart, so much so that he despised his father, and he turned against his father, and he drove David, King David, he drove him out of the kingdom. He mocked him. He, he embarrassed him in front of the, the, the people. His own son hurt David so deeply and drove him out. What was God doing? Chastening David. Chastening David. Making a greater man out of David. There's another time. I like it. Well, I wish I had time. There was another guy named Shimei. Shimei was, was a, just, a, just a nobody. And when David was, was hiding and he was fleeing from Jerusalem, and as he and his few hundred men are, are going along the way, Shimei was picking up big rocks and throwing it at David. He called David everything under the sun. And he just, he spit at David. He says, you're, you're reaping, David. You're a wicked man, David. And David's walking down there and dodging the stones. And now David's got some good men with him. All right? And Abishai looks at him and says, let me go get him. <laughs> I'll just strike him once. <laughs> and you know what David says? Let him alone. For God has sent him. And with Shimei, God is chastening me. And I will not fight that. Wow. You see, throughout David's life, instead of him fighting the chasing hand of God, he knew when it was at work and he yielded to it. That's what made him a great king and a great man. Not that he was so wicked. He did have his times, didn't he? But that wasn't the only time he got in trouble. He, he seems to always be going through chastening. But that's God putting the pressure. That's God ripping off the things that don't belong. And, and, and God fashioning David into somebody pretty near close to what Jesus Christ was going to be like. David. When the Corinthian Christians there in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 were, were playing with the Lord's Supper and they would come to church, they'd bring their big picnics and they'd eat in front of people who had nothing. And they ignored the imbalances and they ignored ministering to one another and they'd sit and they'd get drunk at church and they would eat themselves gorged while people were starving in church. And then they would try to celebrate our Lord's Last Supper. And, you know, Paul said, you guys, some of you are weak, some of you are sickly, and some of you are dead because God's chastening you. They didn't know why everything was going wrong in their life. See, God chastens his children. Uh, Paul, you know, Paul, I said this last week, Paul's sitting there, he's having revelations from God every other week. He writes more of the New Testament than anybody else. He, there's only three other writers in the entire Bible that wrote, writes more than Paul. And Paul's writing all these things in the New Testament. He's, he's, he's starting more churches than anybody else. And he's going around, and the one thing he has the tendency to be is proud. And so the Lord comes in and goes, Ugh! and he puts that thorn in there, and Paul says, Ugh! Now, Lord, in the name of Jesus, I ask you in faith, take this thorn from me. And the Lord goes, eh, eh. Well, Lord, maybe you didn't hear me. I'm going to pray in greater faith. And three times he prayed, Lord, remove this thorn. And the Lord says, no, I'll give you grace instead. Why did the Lord do that? To chasten Paul, to humble him, to stop him, and to make him come down to earth and go, I'm grateful. I'm just grateful to be used by God. Instead of him strutting around like a peacock, look at how God's using me. He was able to walk around and say, I'm just glad God's using me. 
That is what chastening does. And if you've got a thorn in your flesh and you're married to that thorn or you're stuck with that thorn, your son or your daughter or your mom or your dad or you're stuck with that neighbor or you're stuck with that boss and it's a thorn in your flesh, you're stuck with that preacher who just won't shut up. (laughs) And you're stuck with that thorn. What's God doing? He's chastening. He's trying to conform you. Your circumstances aren't there to ruin you. I don't care what you go through. They are there to make you like Jesus. If you would get this, you've got my message. You've got the truth. You'll wake up tomorrow and go, it's hard, Lord. I don't know if I can go another step. I don't know how to carry this burden. I don't know how to deal with this pain. But if this is what it takes to make me like Jesus, I'll go forward. Even though I can't see you, even though I can't sense you, I know you're at work, and I believe with all my heart that you'll make me like gold. Then you've got my message. Samson, walking around, he could kill a thousand men with the jawbone of a donkey. But he didn't seem to need God. You know what God did? God humbled him with a woman. I mean, humiliated him and took him out and, and, and portrayed and allowed him and put him out there on, on show to the Philistines as they made fun of him, made him like a cow, going around in a mill there, gouged out his eyes. He can't see. He doesn't have strength. He has no home. He has no love. He has no life. He is an animal. And in one last final chance, he says, Lord, I've learned my lesson. And if you'll give me strength this one time, and if it's from you, I'll do your will. And God gives him. What did God do in all that chastening? Make a better man out of him. He died a better man than he ever lived. Amen? Samson, Job, we we could be here all day. Job's a man who lost everything. If there's one thing he got, it was a realization. God was against him. God, God, God is my enemy. God is God's against me. This is awful. Until he talks to God and he says, God, you're good. God, I'm sorry I had it all wrong. I was so angry at you. I got so upset at you. I fought you. I argued with you. I complained about you. But I'm vile. You are wise. Thank you. You've chastened me sore. But you're, 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 you're at work and I trust you. Job came out a better man after, the book of, after all of that sorrow, didn't he? After all those troubles. Israel, we don't have time. I'm telling you, that Bible is about chastening. That Bible is about suffering. It's about trouble. The, most, the best friend you ought to have is that book in your lap, reading and connecting with and walking in the shoes of the people who are going through stuff just like you and me. And they learn that God is good. Israel, was when they went down to Egypt, they went down there. They were treated like royalty. They were given the best land. They were allowed to build their houses right along the most fertile area of Egypt. They seemed to have it all until a king rose up that did not know Joseph. And turned against them and made their life miserable for 400 years. Was God punishing them? No. God was preparing them to be a great nation in the promised land. They could not be a great nation as spoiled brats. So he let Egypt refine them and chasten them, prepare them so that they could become that. He didn't quite get it all. The first day they left Egypt, they still had some problems. But God was fashioning a great nation out of them. Now, four more truths, quickly, about chastening. Number one, both punishment and chastening are good and necessary. Go back to Psalm 94. Psalm, we were just there. Let's read that again. Psalm 94 and verse 12. Blessed is the man whom thou chastenest, O Lord, and teachest him out of thy law. Look at Psalm 119.71. Psalm 119.71 It is a good thing for me that I have been, what? Afflicted. I've got more scriptures. I just want you to understand. You say, boy, God seems to be, you know, uh, things seem to just seem so harsh when God has to judge Sodom and Gomorrah, when God has to judge certain things. and God, It just seems so harsh. No, it's good. People need to take God seriously. So don't despise neither chastening nor punishment. But secondly, 
Every believer experiences God's chastening. There are no exceptions. Every believer throughout the Bible, throughout history, has experienced times of great affliction and troubles from the hand of God. The best of believers, go to Psalm 34, the best of believers experienced affliction and chastening by God. Psalm 34 and verse 19. Psalm 34, 19. Many are the afflictions of the of the righteous, not the wicked only. Don't worry about don't worry about everyone else. Worry about how trying to do right. Good. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivereth them out of them all. Hmm. Even the old the the holiest of the Old Testament prophets, James says, take for example as an example the prophets of old. They suffered. You know, a lot of those old-time prophets, they were killed, they were hated, they had no place to sleep. They didn't live like the modern televangelists. They didn't live with their own private jet. They didn't preach and get a penny for anything they did. Matter of fact, sometimes they walk around for days starving, the Bible says, living in caves. And yet they were righteous. My point is this. What is God doing? Making great men out of them? Making great women out of them? You say, it's not fair. No, it's just not your way. It's God's way. What does the Bible say about His ways? His ways are higher than our ways. By the way, if you have no chastening, it's because you don't belong to God. Because every son whom God receives, He chastens. So, this is the big point. You say, how do I tell? How do I tell whether the devil's punishing me and attacking me? How do I tell whether I'm reaping for my sin? How do I tell if this is just Adam's curse that's on me? How do I tell where God's pruning? Just deal with God. He's the only one to talk to. He's the only one to deal with. Because he's in charge of what's happening in your life. You say, where is God? When all He's right there and he's in charge. Nod your head. Part of our Christian training is chastening. And God chastens, he afflicts, and he corrects his children. It's what he does the most and most often in our lives. Not because he enjoys it either. Probably my dad enjoyed sometimes correcting me. But God doesn't enjoy it. He's looking at the results. He's looking at the fruit of it. Amen? He's looking at what I'm trying to become, what he wants me to become. So when the devil is at you, you get up and you say, man, this is a this is a spiritual war going on. Talk to God. Amen. You say, man, I, I messed up last week and now I know I'm reaping. Talk to God. You just get fired for no reason. Go through stress. Going through hurt and trial. Go to God. Doesn't it make it easy? Cry out. I don't care if it takes all night. Just cry out, cry out, cry out, cry out to God. Say, Lord, you're in charge. You must think this is good. <laughs> you must know something I don't know. So I guess we just need to talk. I need to get this off my chest. I need to get this out of me because I'm getting bitter, Lord. I'm getting, I'm getting hard. I'm getting to where this, is, this isn't working and I want it to work. I want it to get over with. Amen. Talk to God. He's the one to deal with. Expect, expect pain. Expect hardship. You're in Psalms, go to 118, verse 18. Psalm 118, verse 18. Funny how I'm turning to Psalms a lot today. Psalms are songs, but they, some of them are sad songs. They're about the trials, the chastening, the heartaches, the pain, the hurt. Psalm 118, and verse 18. Look what he writes. The Lord hath chastened me sore. What does sore mean? It hurts. Psalm 118, 18. The Lord has chastened me sore, but he hath not given me over unto death. Amen. <laughs> you know, chastening is painful by design. We read that there in Hebrews 12, 11. It says, Now no chastening for the, for, the, for the present seemeth to be joyous, but it is what? Grievous. You know, that's true with, with Olympics. Uh, what do they say to these guys who are going in there and try to win an Olympic? I don't know if that's South Korean or not, but anyway. No, he doesn't look. <laughs> anyway, I tried to find. Anyway, Chinese probably. He is? Probably. 
It's all far, it's all Greek to me, amen. So, but you know what they told him when he joined up and wanted to go into the uh, uh, Olympics? You know what they told him? No pain, no gain. Amen. You want to grow in your Christian life? Say it with me. No pain, no gain. Uh, you go to the Olympics, it's going to be painful. You want to have a rose bush full of vibrant roses? It's going to be painful cutting off the dead, pruning the dead leaves and branches. You know, Hebrew, uh, sorry, Jeremiah chapter 18 describes God as the potter and we are the clay. Hey, that clay doesn't design itself. It's not evolutionary. <laughs> that clay doesn't, that clay doesn't, doesn't do anything except yield to the hand of the potter. And that potter sometimes says, you're not working well with me. And if you've ever had the chance, and I grew up, my mom uh, ran a pottery wheel. It was actually part of her, her shop name called the Owl and Spinning Wheel. It was a craft store. And she ran a pottery uh, class every day in the back of that thing. And she had a pottery wheel running all day long. People coming in, being able to make things. Had an oven where you'd, you'd, you'd cook them and kill them and paint them and all this stuff. But that you'd have that wheel going around and around, and that clay just wouldn't get in shape. And so my mom would take that, that piano wire, switch off the machine, and take that wire and come underneath it and, and remove it off of that potter wheel and pick it up. And that little woman had some strength. She'd pick it up and go, wham! <laughs> and then she'd start that wheel up again. She'd, we're going to make it work. <laughs> and that's the Lord. He's the potter and we're the clay. What am I saying? You gotta expect pain. You gotta expect that upheaval sometimes. How about how about this? You and I, we we just see a rock, we see a diamond in the rough. God sees two beautiful gemstones that he can get out of that thing. See, that's what a that's what a, a precision jeweler, he looks at that rock and he says, I can I can I can use that. I mean, I have no idea what can come out of that thing, but he can see all that's gonna be there. Look at all that has to come off though. He's got to chip away at everything. We'll talk about that in conclusion. God's the refiner. We're the silver or the gold. We're full of dross and he has to heat things up and heat things up so that all that stuff comes to the top and he can scrape it off. You see this thing throughout the Bible? Man, how about this? You see somebody, you don't see them anymore. I mean, all we do is virtual. Everything is now on the computer or on TV. Nobody does anything. Do you guys get you a hobby and build stuff? Would you just, just go out and dig a hole in the back garden? Would you just nail something into the side of your house and say, yippee, I did something, amen. But here's this guy, and he started to chip away at a horse. And a, and a, and a little boy came up to him, seeing him chiseling into that rock, and he was making a horse, and he asked, how do you make that rock into a horse? And the artist said, I simply start with a block of marble and I chisel away everything that doesn't look like a horse. Amen. When the Lord begins to chisel away in your life, you know what he's doing? He's chiseling away everything that doesn't look like Jesus. And when he cuts away, it hurts. Last truth. Most people reject God's chastening. I think it's the biggest grief of my life. Leo, watching Christians fight God. That is the most stupid thing you can ever do. You get angry at the pastor. You get angry at Leo. You get angry at, at uh, Tony. You get angry at, at Bill. Now, that's okay. But, but you get angry and you, you just, oh, I'm not doing that anymore. And, and I, they, they just don't understand me. Nobody ever cared about me. Nobody ever shook my hand. Nobody ever got me a cup of tea. Nobody, uh, uh. You know what you're doing? You're fighting God. All those failures, nobody should have failed you. Nobody should have let you down. But in the end, God was in charge, wasn't he? And when you start fighting the chasing hand of God, you're doing the most stupid thing you could ever do. Don't do it. There was a time where a guy named Ahab, King Ahab, had a prophet stand up to him. Micaiah was his name. He told him exactly what was going to happen. He was going to be judged. He was going to die. And Ahab said, send him out of here. Don't like listening to him anyway. And he fought. God's rebuke, and had, he had a chance to live and repent, and he blew it. He fought the chastening hand of God. Go to uh, Proverbs chapter 1. One more book to the right from Psalms, and we're through. Proverbs 
chapter 1 and verse 23. Listen to these words. Some of the saddest words, I think, in the Bible, Proverbs chapter 1 and verse 23 Turn you at my reproof. Turn means repent. Turn around at my reproof when I correct you. Behold, if you do, I will pour out my spirit unto you. I will make known my words unto you. But because I have called and ye have refused, I've stretched out my hand and no man hath regarded. No man gave me the time of day, but ye have set at naught. All my accounts, you treat it like nothing. You sit there in church and you hear week after week, month after month, and you just let it go in one ear and out the other. You just let it go and you go, well, I'm here doing my time, but I'm getting out of here as fast as I can. Listen to God. You've said it not all my counsel and would none. You would not receive any of my reproof. Well, look at verse 26. I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your fear cometh. When your fear cometh as desolation. And your destruction cometh of the whirlwind. When distress and anguish cometh upon you, then shall they call upon me, but I will not answer. Then they shall seek me early, but they shall not find me. Go down to verse 30. Why? They would none of my counsel, and they despised all of my reproof. You know what? You know why most people go to hell? Not because they don't know about Jesus Christ. Not because they don't know they need to be saved. But because they don't want it. You know why most people keep their anger? Why they keep their bitterness? Why they keep their fight? Why they keep their attitude? Why they keep their sin? Why they keep doing the same old, same old? Because they don't want to hear that they're wrong. It's sad. When that happens even among Christians. Troubles are normal. They're normal for everyone. Do not confuse chastening with punishment. Both have pain. Both have sorrows. You know, when, when you're being chastened, don't think God's so angry at you. Don't sit there and go, God must be really angry. Probably not. The Lord loves you. If he was really upset at you, you'd be dead. Amen. I've given you examples of God chastening his people and I've showed you God judging. But I've showed you five truths about God's chastening so that you sort of get to think, okay, God, it hurts. It's hard work. You're, you're, you're trying to take things off of me, out of me. My, my, my attitudes, my way of thinking, my tongue, my, 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 my demeanor. You're trying to change me. And I'm fighting you? Are you finding God's chastening difficult when he does all that? Is it painful? It's a, it is how it is. It cannot be made any easier. Don't let it be wasted. Next week we'll talk about yielding to it and, and, and learning how to just, just work with God's hand. See, when God forges and prunes and corrects and guides and develops us, it's a miracle work. God trying to change stubborn, hard-headed knuckleheads like us. Don't let it go wasted. By the way, Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6 says, He which hath begun a good work in you. Chastening is that good work. It's not a bad work. It's a good work. And it's that good work that Jesus began in each of us when we got saved. Chastening. If it's not actively going on in your life, then there is something wrong. And believe it's not God's fault that you're not getting in trouble. You're not in the family. I don't think I gave you this illustration. I had five kids all out on the green, riding their bikes and, and uh, uh, on their skateboards and climbing trees and digging holes and everything else in our front garden. Amen. There they all are. And I come out and I, there's, a, there's like 15 kids out there. But what are the ones that I'm worried about? What are the ones that I'm correcting? What are the ones that I'm saying, let your sister get on the bike now? No, 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 no. You, you cannot close your eyes when you're riding down the hill on your skateboard. No, keep your eyes open. No, stop. No, no the, the, the digging goes down at the park, not here. No. <laughs> if I, 
if I had to try to correct all the kids in my estate, I'd never sleep. I worry about my kids, amen? God's not trying to correct the whole world. He's worrying about his kids. And believe me, he will deal with his children. If you're on the sideline and, and you see God working on Christians and they seem to be going through trials and troubles and tears coming out of their eyes and, 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 and they seem to have a hard time and you're just happy-go-lucky, never get in trouble, I hope you get jealous. Jealous for tears? Yes. Jealous because that's a perfect Heavenly Father who's watching over His children. He's not coddling them. He's making them. Would you like to be saved today? I wish you wanted to. I wish you saw that all the hardship, all the heartache that I go through is so that I can fellowship with His suffering and I'm made conformable unto Jesus Christ. That's the greatest goal. You say, are you happy, Ledbetter? A lot of the time. But I need to be holy. I want to be like Jesus. I pray you do too. If you're not saved, today's the day. Talk to me. Talk to Dan. Talk to Kathy. Talk to somebody, man. Don't you go out of here the same. Let's stand and let's bow in prayer, would you? What else can I say? Did you get the message? Did you get any of it? Try to understand chastening, heartache. Why do bad things happen to good people? It's all in there. This will answer a lot of questions in your life. But it's not there just to give you an answer. It's to give you a different direction, a different attitude. Father, we bow before you and we realize mainly and probably quite painfully that thou in faithfulness has afflicted us and that it's been a good thing for there to be trouble in our life. That's not the most popular. It's actually the opposite of the most popular message ever that could be preached. But it is the most necessary. And it's the most true. Man is born into trouble as the sparks fly upward. What are we going to do with it? How are we going to react to it? Do we, do we do roll over and die? Or do we trust a loving Heavenly Father? Somebody needs to make Him their Heavenly Father. It's not automatic. We're, we're children of our earthly parents. It's time for some people to decide to make God their Father. It's time for every Christian in this room who claims to be a follower of Jesus Christ to bow their head and say, God, I'm sorry. I fought you for so long. I have not seen that it was always your hand in my life when I was struggling and hurting. But I accept it now. And I want more than anything to know how to live under your firm hand. I want to grow up, God. I want to be like Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.